0: I think where we start to see a divide between the method of perpetrating these crimes, between the old and the new. You know, someone across the world can commit these cyber crimes, which just wasn't possible before the advent of the internet and the reliance on technology that we experience today.
1: Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. When it comes to keeping a business safe from cyber attacks, it's rarely enough to have the latest security software or even the best information technology team. What's needed is a holistic approach that brings in a company's best security, technology, HR, and more experts from across a spectrum. In this podcast, our host and RAIN founder, David Lawrence, speaks to Mike Kenny, a cybersecurity expert at Consortium Network and RAIN director of safety and security, Brian Lynch.
2: Mike and Brian, it truly is a, a very special occasion to be speaking with you and in the current environment uh, where literally a day does not go by without a headline about cybersecurity threats, ransomware, attacks, the loss of information. And this can be, as you know, uh, it can feel overwhelming and with such complexity, um, people are almost... Paralyzed in terms of being able to think through the issues with clarity and, most importantly, what can be done about it. So um, it's it's unusual that um, I can have a conversation with two very, very calm, thoughtful people who have managed these issues, uh, both on the government side and also within the private sector. So thanks for sitting down with us and having what I hope will be a very calm clear, and simplified conversation around what is now a existential threat to our country, to businesses, to our government agencies, etc. So welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to be here, David.
2: What I'd like to begin with is, and I, th- I think this is very, very important, is to sort of set the table in terms of um, what is going on in the the world and why it's happening, and why systems are under attack, and what's being lost. And if, I, if you don't mind sort of bearing with me, and you can you know, either agree or disagree with this, in my conversations with our many clients and also with some of the leadership coming out of the government, I have tried to highlight that what is happening here is not a technology issue. I like to say that the crimes being committed go back to the Bible, fraud, blackmail, extortion, kidnapping, obviously, but this is now kidnapping of data, espionage, sabotage, and obviously um, with the disinformation campaigns, you know, propaganda. These are battles and wars and conflicts that have been waged since the beginning of time. And I've also found it helpful to think about the actors behind this, that you have your one-off criminals, you have your quasi-organized groups, you have your heavily organized groups, you have your mischievous and hacktivists and you know anarchists, uh, and then you have your state-sponsored actors. So let me throw that out as maybe an opening statement. and would love to Gather your, your thoughts and have them shared with the audience.
0: Absolutely, David. This is Mike here. And if I could start with that one, I want to underscore a couple of points, David, that you made in the intro there that I think will run throughout the course of our conversation here. And the first is the simple cost benefit analysis. And I look at it from two different points of view. One, from the attacker point of view, the cost of perpetrating a cyber criminal act is relatively low. Uh, They probably won't get caught. The resources required to track down criminal actors at the end of uh, these acts is relatively high. So low cost from the attacker perspective, potentially high benefit. Uh, The reliance that individuals and companies place on technology these days uh, creates an incentive for the victims of attack to, to do whatever is necessary to bring their operations or their systems back online quickly. And so it sets up a skewed cost benefit uh, from the attacker's perspective. On the other side of the equation, from the victim's perspective, the cost of preventing that attack is relatively high. And I'm not just talking about money to buy cybersecurity products or tools, but it's time and capacity to understand what is a relatively uh, complicated uh, Set of circumstances, both technologically, but also the motivations and the um, sort of underlying connectivity of the world today. And then on on the other side of that, the benefit uh, the benefit of making an investment in cybersecurity to many businesses or governments or individuals is unknown. Um, a lot of them aren't yet taking a risk-based or a holistic approach to cybersecurity. And they're looking at cybersecurity uh, simply as a cost with an unknown benefit um, that's not easily quantifiable when it comes to reducing risk. So I think those two pieces, um, you know, will run throughout the course of our conversation. You mentioned what's being lost. And I I think money or uh, efficiency in some respect is what comes to mind first. But what I think is more important is uh trust confidence, uh, faith in uh, you know institutions whether they're businesses or governments to deliver products and services in a reliable way. Uh, the sort of logical conclusion of that concern is you could end up limiting future growth. Um, you know people become reluctant to uh, transact business online or move uh, certain business processes, Uh, to the cloud or embrace other forms of technology because of the risk associated with doing so. And I think that's a a significant concern.
3: Yes, David, uh, this is Brian. Uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about a couple other aspects of your opening, David. Uh, I I believe it, it needs to continue to be a whole of government and private sector approach. Government cannot do it by itself, nor can the private sector, for a number of reasons. I think structurally, uh, the information that's needed uh, is probably not going to be generated through private sector intelligence programs, etc. But I think the seizing of the ransomware payments by the Bureau is a critical step. Uh, I think where we can, uh, where the reach of law enforcement and prosecutorial action for those actors uh, that are conducting this type of activity is an important step. I think the fact that we can designate organizations, we can provide and initiate foreign sanctions are an important aspect. And it, and it also comes down to structure, an organization on the threat. I hearken back to my time uh, in the government and the FBI and uh, look at the Joint Terrorism Task Force construct. Everything that has to do with terrorism flows through that type of structure. And, uh, you know, maybe we need something like that in the cybersecurity space where one call <clears throat> is a call to all. And there is a coordinated approach to addressing this type of activity. Uh, And it doesn't really matter who's doing it. There will be a construct about how do we go about uh, minimizing the risk, helping firms get where they need to get to relative to cybersecurity, and then uh, addressing the actors that have been identified, uh, whether they're criminal groups, individuals, or nation-state actors uh, can be addressed through that structure, that organized approach to try to get our arms around the the issue, and then uh, what are the ramifications for activities that are being conducted by these folks against companies.
2: So, Brian, let me just sort of draw upon your law enforcement experience, and I'd like to see if we can get some common ground here. But All the crimes that are being committed are actually traditional crimes, are they not? Whether it's theft, fraud, espionage, blackmail, extortion, you know, holding things for ransom.
3: One would argue that the criminal activity that is being conducted by organizations and criminals use computers and the cyber world to conduct those activities, one would argue it's a means to an end. So instead of breaking and entering and stealing a file cabinet, they sit in a location and they go in through the network to steal data. So, to your point, this can be argued is a means to an end. It's another way for criminal activity to occur.
2: And again, in level setting this, and Mike, you had a leadership role with the city of New York where issues of crime rates and what i'll refer to as various theories of policing have taken hold um you know the city has has had their issues lately but overall remain safe what i i wonder about is why the issues of safety and security are not being addressed in the same way that we address if somebody broke into an office and stole files or if somebody sabotaged a particular business or government agency. Why are we sort of at this point now where we continue to drive out products, and Mike, to your point, continue to build upon our reliance on digital connectivity without having had this holistic approach that treats this like any other traditional crime, albeit there are now new weapons and new portals for the commission of these events.
0: I see that and I think one thing that the city of New York did that sort of makes that connection is they did launch a free app called NYC Secure and they implemented some basic cyber hygiene tools on publicly available Wi-Fi access points. And so what that did was, you know, from the, from the perspective of uh, what can I do to, to defend myself or defend my community or, or make less likely the impact of a criminal act, the city did some very forward-leaning things in that regard. And I think that people, um, you know, at home and businesses can, can take those, some of those steps as well. I think where we start to see a divide between the method of perpetrating these crimes between the old and the new is the complete and total breakdown of of physical space. Um, You know, someone across the world can commit these cyber crimes, uh, which just wasn't possible before the advent of the internet and the reliance on technology that we experience today.
2: We have spoken about what is needed in this space because it hasn't occurred it was interesting to me that leadership within some of the most senior people within our national intelligence community have basically on the record stated that these attacks are not going to stop anytime soon and people should just be aware that they will continue to have their data taken, misappropriated, held for ransom, et cetera. And we've also seen from recent events that even the most significant government agencies are not immune to these things. And the question is, I think that every business is trying to grapple with, every government agency, is what can be done here? What is the holistic approach? What are some of the practical steps? Because um, I'll quote from Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, who was describing the cryptocurrency world as the Wild West, this kind of feels like we're living in the Wild West. There's no 911 to call to get a response. It's not as though, you know, there's any kind of effective protection for our institutions. And when an attack does happen, you know, uh, companies are in many respects left left to their own devices. So, what is it that institutions can start to do? How do they stay on top of this? If they cannot eliminate the risk, how can they begin to mitigate? How can they be a little bit safer and more secure?
3: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, David, and, and an interesting uh, topic. I, I'll come. To that, in, in in a in a couple of ways, I, I think there's three major components. I think there's education. I think there's the ability to identify threats, and then there's the process of mitigation. Uh, but I come back to a philosophy, a concept, if you will, about how to address this issue, and I and I come back to the to the physical security world. Do we have what we need to protect the outer perimeter, the inner perimeter? Do we have access control? Have we identified key assets, what we used to call emerald assets, what we help our clients with? Do we have inventory control? Are we managing breaches? If the data is compromised, have you taken an inventory of the type of data that you have so that you can identify? what has been breached, and what has or might have been taken. Uh, Do we have a threat intelligence program? What are the internal expertise uh, components that we have internal to the company? Do we have external partners that help us meet our goals? Now, let let me end this particular uh, comment by looking at what I think the central components of a cybersecurity program should include. It should protect the perimeter of the company's network. It should preserve and protect data in the network through segmentation, access control, ongoing monitoring, etc. should enable the business. How does the organization accomplish its mission and, and how can the IT component of that help the business? And then how do we manage the risk? I come back to, to, to four items that we, that we talk about, David, uh, all the time. Can I identify, once I identify a problem, am I looking at it, am I analyzing it, am I responding to it, and am I resolving it? And, and, and I think this, it, it comes down to organization and structure about what we're trying to protect
0: Yeah, I want to echo what Brian said, and I want to add a little bit more flavor to that from first from the enterprise perspective. And I think it's also valuable to talk about what can what can the everyday person do in his or her um, you know, life outside or w- away from the office? Um, when we talk about steps to take NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, which is part of the Commerce Department, has laid out the cybersecurity framework, which I think is is relatively well known to to IT professionals and people in the cybersecurity discipline, but it starts with identify, identify what you have, protect, protect it, detect anomalous activity on or around what you've identified and respond to that activity and then recover or repair um, after the conclusion of that event and that framework is helpful in the abstract i think what it means in a in a practical sense varies organization by organization but those steps are a, a good way to approach cybersecurity i think the the key is to begin to think about resilience and that goes back to your point david about you know if you've got the the highest levels of the federal government suggesting that these attacks aren't going to stop um, you want to do what you can to prevent them. But really, you also want to focus on reducing the impact when they inevitably happen. How do I minimize my downtime? How do I minimize or eliminate any sort of operational disruption for my company or for my government, for the critical services that we provide? And that all ties back to knowing what those services are, knowing what those you know products or outcomes are, and their dependencies on technology and taking uh taking steps to add resilience into each one of those deliverables and what's what's interesting here is the approach to do that often means a heavier reliance on technology so migration to the cloud or a multi-cloud approach or multiple you know, regions within a cloud environment can make your operation that much more resilient to cyber attacks, but also to natural disasters or, um, you know, user error, a cut power cord or a a power outage or anything like that. And so I think these pieces all tie together uh, in terms of expecting something bad to happen, preparing for it and taking steps to reduce the impact when it does. I also want to touch on, you know, Brian's point around, The perimeter, which I think is an important one and still very relevant today. There is, though, a shift toward a zero trust approach, which is sort of a a dissolution of the perimeter, a dissolving of the perimeter, and an assumption that uh, your assets, your information assets, live on the internet and control to those assets is is tightly limited to who needs to know and why they need to know Uh, but it it sort of does away with the concept of a heavily guarded fortified perimeter in the company's data center and i think both of those approaches are relevant right now although the shift is toward a zero trust approach it will take some time to get there
2: great insights from both of you i'd like to press uh, each of you a little bit uh, further we're in a environment where institutional trust is at a low point. Trust of the government is continues to be at a low point. And the government is quite frankly struggling with trying to get first voluntary cooperation and now you know the potential for regulatory action to require companies to disclose when these events have happened. So what I would say about, and I keep going back to, a, a conflict in my own brain of why these issues are different than, you know, what I'll refer to as analog crime versus digital crime, physical crime versus online crime. But if someone were attacked, or you know, there was a theft at a bank, or you know, someone's offices were robbed or somebody was holding something of value for ransom, there's a 911 number that people would use. And they'd report it, they'd work with the authorities. And yet that kind of cooperation or that kind of support or service, it just doesn't seem to exist right now. And if we don't have that level of trust between the government and the private sector where these events can be disclosed, and information can be shared how much progress can we make number 1 and number 2 what is it that we need to bring the digital world onto the analog platform of how we deal with traditional crimes that trusted reporting relationship
3: yeah i uh, it's a great question and an interesting topic so i'm going to i'm going to take it this way Two two points on this. I think that there are a number of companies that even if there was trust with law enforcement would be reticent to report because I don't think that they want the negative publicity that's attached to having a breach. It's interesting that if they have a theft, a physical theft, a breach of their property, that obviously that gets reported because the police will arrive, there's alarms that go off, and that is maybe a little bit more acceptable to the public than a cyber breach, just thinking out loud. Uh, it's an interesting human behavior, though, because a lot of companies don't want to be known as been, as having a cyber breach, Just thinking off the top of my head. The second way that I'd like to to get into this topic is I go back to some of my work that we conducted in the Bureau on bank fraud matters. Now, bank frauds obviously are generated through a SAR, Suspicious Activity Report. Banks are required to report that activity. I wonder if they were not required to report that activity, would they? So, I think that we're looking at some structure that requires companies to report a breach, similar to a SAR, could be a SAR cyber breach, however they classify it, that is then reinforced through regulatory review.
0: Yeah, I like where you're going with that, Brian. And I do think there has to be some element of. I mean, I guess David, to your first question, how far how much progress can we make without this collaboration? I think the answer is limited to none. So it's a prerequisite for further progress in the space. When it comes to requiring companies to report, it's an easy concept to agree with and I agree with it. The devil though is in the details. If you're if you're sort of knee deep in a cyber incident response or the investigation of a potential cyber incident, I'd say the lines are not necessarily always bright and clear in terms of when you cross over into an actual breach from a suspected breach. And you know where exactly do you draw the line? When exactly do you enforce or compel reporting of, of certain information? I think that's the challenge right now is to sort of clarify the demarcation between Um, you know, an actual breach and the reporting requirements that come along with it and the penalties that ensue if you fail to meet that requirement. But that's not an unsolvable problem. Um, We can certainly make progress against it. And I do think eventually you begin to require reporting on these things. You penalize it. uh, Entities that don't report And, um, you know, I think there is a way to adjust the incentives in that space for better information sharing, at least in the United States.
1: We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. Individuals and organizations turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect and what to do. To learn more about Rain, go to rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today.
2: Is there a requirement for government agencies when they are breached to report either centrally to the federal government or centrally to a state government? Or,
0: Yeah, I think it varies. I mean, within the federal government, you've got the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, CISA, which sits within the Department of Homeland Security. is sort of the belly button for the you know, cyber incident reporting for the um you know, civilian side of the federal government. At the state and local level, it varies. I mean, in New York City, we always worked with with law enforcement, and that was local law enforcement, but also federal law enforcement on these types of matters as they, as they came up. Um, but I don't expect that you would see any consistency across the country in terms of uh, defining what an incident is and then defining the follow-on steps in terms of reporting and cooperation with law enforcement. It's a patchwork.
2: And I'm thinking particularly with the events in Atlanta, Baltimore, and other cities where there was essentially lockdown of government agencies. And obviously, there was a certain amount of press exposure around that. But um, just curious whether on the local, state, and national level, is there a system for coordinating... Uh, disclosures and gaining cooperation and forensic assistance around uh, these events?
0: Not consistently, and I'd say limited. I mean, if you're Sheboygan or Peoria, um, I, don't, I don't know that I would bank on assistance from uh, federal agencies in terms of forensic analysis or investigation or your respective uh, Wisconsin or Illinois state entities. I just don't expect that it would be there. You'd likely bring in a third-party incident response firm, uh, and you'd bring them in at a time of crisis, which would be on the more expensive uh, side. It's a tough situation to be in, and, and then ultimately you may make further investments in your cybersecurity program thereafter. But it doesn't, it doesn't help to, to solve the situation ahead of time or help you when you're in the midst of a crisis.
2: And I want to uh, circle back what Brian said. You know, for reputational reasons, obviously companies worry about uh, client defection. They're standing in the community, the industry. There are people who have responsibility for these risks, and so when they happen, you know, there's I call it there's uh, professional exposure here. But I'm reminded of. Something that um, former FBI director Jim Comey said when, um, when he was heading the bureau, he described the world as consisting of three types of companies, those who have been hacked, those who are about to be hacked, and those who already have been hacked but don't know about it. And that sort of seems to be the case these days. And, Mike, you referred to, you know, these types of events are not a matter of if, it's just kind of when. It's almost inevitable. And to Brian's point, you know, it it feels as though there's a certain amount of shame, stigma, reputational loss when this happens that would not occur if there were, you know, a break into the physical offices. And as I, again, I, I try to, for my own thinking, I've tried to, you know, analogize with traditional crime, but I I feel as though we're almost at the point of where we were decades ago about reporting and disclosing instances of sexual assault. And part of it is the stigma or shame of having been a victim, but also the... Regulatory response, which is what I want to get into, because you got to look at the enforcement landscape um, and how regulators treat these events. But, you know, the notion that when reporting these things, when they do happen, certainly subjects you to questions such as you didn't do enough to fight off your attacker, uh, you should have known you were likely to be attacked because. Look how you're dressed. Uh, what were you doing in those neighborhoods anyway? Et cetera. of so they blame the victim that a company should have recognized it was a target. A company didn't do enough to fight off their attacker. The company was doing business in the various places and with a supply chain that looked like X, Y, and Z. And of course you were going to be vulnerable. And that, you know, Had you done what you behaved as you should have behaved, it shouldn't have happened. And as a result, you know, we're going to have an enforcement proceeding. We're going to have an investigation. There are going to be fines that are levied. And I want to throw out to both of you because, I, you know, the need for this cooperation, and we haven't even gotten into the international basis for the types of treaties that we need to see, but it just feels to me that we have not approached this issue as we now approach some of these traditional crimes. Women uh, are no longer subjected to that kind of analysis, yet what, look what happens to companies that you know, are the victims here. And I'd like to get your thoughts on what might have to change on the enforcement landscape as we take a holistic approach or a holistic perspective to this problem.
0: Yes. Yeah, so let me start with the end of that question, David, which is, you know, I think there are some simple things that we can do on the enforcement side of the spectrum spectrum to change the approach. One is a clear definition of sort of what reasonable safeguards means. There, there's, you know, a, a whole host of state and local legislation that has to do with privacy protection. And the obligations on companies and governments to protect you know, individuals' personal information with reasonable safeguards. But those aren't clearly defined. Uh, and I think it's been, for the most part, left up to courts to determine up to this point what reasonable means in, this, in these situations. But I think it's actually fairly straightforward in terms of uh, a bit of a reference to the NIST framework that I mentioned before. But at a very tactical level, it's asset management, it's multi-factor authentication, it's some sort of tool on your endpoint, your computer, your server, your laptop, uh, that does antivirus or anti-malware or endpoint detect and response. And it's a reasonable backup strategy. And I think you combine those four elements, and those point to sort of a foundational cybersecurity Program and then you can focus on the maturity of those controls and ultimately, uh, you know, shifting to a risk-based approach. But I think with a clear understanding of what you should have in place, you can move to a more meaningful conversation on enforcement. When someone breaks into a bank and steals the money, uh, you know it's clear that the bank was a victim of a, a robber. Um, but if the door was left unlocked or the vault was left wide open, I think the sympathy disappears. and You face the same sort of situation in the cyber world, although it's not nearly as easy to uh, analogize to um, the cyber defensive controls that were or were not in place. So I think that's, that's one place to start a basic understanding of what foundational best practice cybersecurity controls are and an understanding across the board that they need to be in place. And um, we have to, again, go back to the incentives that reward, you know, a minimum viable product or a new feature being available uh, before it's been fully tested. Uh, You know, the, the phrase move fast and break things comes to mind. And I, I think it's been pretty detrimental in the, in the technology space, especially when, you know, people come to think about cybersecurity after something bad has happened, as opposed to uh, accounting for it in the process of making investments in product or technology or migration to the cloud.
2: So uh, before I turn to Brian, I want to, uh, Brian, let me just, I, I, I want to, because I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I'm hearing a couple of things, Mike, in what you said. Number one, we don't yet have basic safety standards or safety code like we do with fire, as we do with elevators and other things, that basically if you put the following in place, you know, you're not going to be a judge to be negligent. And I'm suggesting, you know, or what I hear is this idea of a safe harbor if, a company in a particular industry does the following things that if attacked successfully that they will have a safe harbor from liability or you know, claims of negligence and things like that. Secondly, what I'm also uh, hearing from you is the, uh, this notion that we are rushing products into the market. Where the safety and security of the users have not been thought through, and I know that NIST, which you referenced earlier, uh sort of is a offspring of something that people may be more familiar with, which is the u l label on electronic equipment uh, underwriters lab, which came about as you know more electronic products were going into households there were Sparks and fires and fuses were blowing out. I don't mean to date myself too much. But this was basically, uh, if a product had the UL label, it meant that it was safe to use. It had passed certain tests and had met certain requirements. So you could bring it into your home with safety and confidence. And I'm hearing you say, we don't yet have that for the products. That we are bringing into our businesses, our homes, uh, and that we are relying upon.
0: Absolutely, on both.
2: Brian, definitely want to get your views on that, you know this notion of shame and stigma, and how we're treating this, and then the points that Mike was
3: making. Yeah. So, for, first of all, going back to Mike's uh, comments, totally agree with uh his points uh and he raises some some great points there and and david as well uh, on your points uh that you just raised uh i I really think it comes down to uh what are the standards that are being required of companies so it's uh it's really uh I think that's simple. Do we have a standard that we're asking companies to get to? And and I think, you know, it's a fair assessment that when, when companies have been exposed to having a breach, they might feel that they are exposed to being caught short on what they should have been doing. And I, and I think that's where it comes down to is, are they comfortable with their current structure, their current cybersecurity program? And I, and I think that's a cost-benefit analysis that companies weigh. Uh, if, if a company is not being forced to expend dollars to shore up their cyber defenses, they may not expend that money. And they may use it in other areas of the operations uh, and then just hope and pray that nothing happens and roll the dice. And then when they do get hacked, then they have to answer the bell. Well, why didn't you have this sort of uh, program in place? And what were the decisions that were being made that led you to where you are today? So I think that's a part of it. Uh But I think it really comes back to, again, the the, the physical uh, security aspect and linking it to the cyber world. You know, in in the uh, physical world, the physical security world, we advise our clients, we use the term duty to care. We have a duty to care to protect people. Uh, and, And maybe we need a duty to care to protect our networks and our cybersecurity needs to bring be brought up to a certain duty-to-care aspect. You know, when you're building a, a, an active shooter program, for example, in a firm, you want to make sure that you have done everything that you can to ensure that your employees know exactly what they need to do should they be caught in that type of situation. And there's various and sundry ways you can do that. And you're held to that standard because it's the right thing to do. It's the duty to care to a person. Uh, we need a duty to care statement for our cybersecurity uh, infrastructure uh, in in our companies in, in the U.S.
2: So uh, great points from both of you. And part of uh, what I was hoping to effectuate here in this uh, podcast was some simplicity around this issue. And so let me do a quick summation of what I think are the points that you guys have eloquently made. That number one, uh, we continue to build and launch products with very little or minimal care and precautions around their vulnerability and I'll call it user safety. Two, is that this is a threat that's not going away. Three, we don't yet have codes in place that specifically tell businesses what they must do. And if they do it, either enforcement action or civil liability will not attach. Something that I think businesses would, you know, depending upon how it's articulated, would welcome because they like certainty and predictability. That something must change to allow a more healthy dynamic between the public and private sector. And finally, that there is no incentive for the attackers right now to cease and desist. And it's only going to increase and uh, as some of the methodologies get more complex and as a whole group of people recognize the risk-reward calculus um, involved in these actions. And also, it clearly benefits certain, I'll call it, adverse state actors who are easily able to steal proprietary information. Is it Would that be a fair summation, guys, in terms of how you've unpacked these issues?
3: For sure. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And there was a theme that, I know, Brian, this was One of your operational themes, not only at Vanguard, but also at the Bureau, and looking at terrorism, the threat of terrorism and terrorism financing. And Mike, this was part of the DNA of your efforts on behalf of the city, together with Jeff Brown, which is this notion that these attacks will be inevitable, but it is about your ability to quickly recover and your own resiliency around this.
3: Absolutely. Well stated.
2: If I could get just your closing thoughts on the topic of resiliency and how the steps that institutions can take vis-a-vis their data Mike, you refer to the cloud, uh, the types of zero trust, etc. that can be embedded in an institution's risk management program.
0: Yeah, so from the institutional perspective, I think I touched on a couple of these. You know, there's some foundational controls that you can put in place. And from a resiliency perspective, what I would stress is, uh, you know, having a backup and restoration plan is not good enough. You need to test that plan. You need to actually test it. You need to actually restore from backups and see how quickly you can get up and running again from the individual perspective. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this in the month of October, which is cybersecurity awareness month. There are some basic steps that individuals can take uh, to better protect themselves and sort of enhance their own resiliency to cyber attack. And that's one, be skeptical of links in your email or text message and don't click them if you're not sure what they are Two enable multi-factor authentication on any account that will accept it. And that's almost everything now from Amazon to your bank accounts, to your cable television provider. Um, And three is turn on auto updates of your, your personal devices, your PC or your Mac, turn on automatic software update. And those three steps, those are basic foundational steps that will go a long way to enhancing your individual sort of cyber resiliency and to the extent you get comfortable with them in your, your away-from-office life, the more comfortable you'll be when they're implemented if they're not already uh, at work. And I'm talking specifically about multi-factor authentication and the sort of the extra step from the user perspective. It's, it's well worth it.
2: Brian, your closing thoughts?
0: Yeah,
3: and I'm, I'm looking at it from a coordinated whole of government and private sector approach, I, I think we have seen an enhanced partnership uh, between those two groups uh, over the years, and I and I think we're heading in the right direction. I think it needs to be a little more tighter. I I think there needs to be a little bit more uh, of a structured, organized approach to combating cyber security issues. Uh, I think it is. Uh, an approach that will take in all of the tools in the toolbox, uh, in order for us to uh, really combat this uh, national and international crime problem, and uh, and I think companies uh, should outreach to law enforcement. I know uh, the bureau has an outreach program. I know that they have uh, contacted a number of employers, uh, and I think that that. Conversation before the bell goes off is important, and and I really uh, think uh, the third point is is understanding what your program, what your cybersecurity program is trying to protect, and then utilize uh, the tools that are available to manage the prioritize risks that you see for your company, and it's not always the biggest, shiniest object that might be the right tool for your, uh, for your infrastructure. Uh, it's the tool that fits into your planning around how am I going to protect my assets and my network.
2: So great insights. I'm reminded uh, what my grandparents used to tell me, which is if uh, common sense were so common, it wouldn't be so highly valued. So Mike, I want to give uh, you a special shout out following your years of service to the city of New York and protecting the uh, digital infrastructure and also supplying the citizens with a great app so that they can access online safely. Uh, You're now working with a good friend of ours, Tim Murphy, the former deputy director of the FBI at a terrific company called Consortium Networks. Uh, Consortium is a valued partner of Rain and part of our network. And working with... uh, leading companies and even government agencies to ensure that they are assessing the risks appropriately and that they in turn are connected with leading uh, providers of solutions and defense software, etc.
0: Very much appreciated, David. Thanks.
2: And Brian, uh, you bear the crucible of uh, working with me on a regular basis inside RAIN leading our security and investigative efforts. So i I'll thank you now
3: publicly for doing so. Well, thank you, David, and it's certainly my pleasure to be with you.
1: Mike Kenney is a cybersecurity expert at Consortium Network, and Brian Lynch is RAIN's Director of Safety and Security. David Lawrence is the founder of RAIN. RAIN is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Learn more about how we can power your business to success at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.